Cue music. Got it.
conducted with the certitude of creative youth, unwittingly set in motion a chain of events that would haunt a society for the better part of a century and which has trapped the unconscious mind of the American civilization in a pit of subconscious cognitive dissonance. Larry, what are you talking about? Corson Wells did a radio show. Why are you setting it up as a boogeyman for our psyche? It's simple, Angela. Orson Welles scared hell out of the radio listening audience the night before Halloween, 1938. Or so the newspapers told us the next morning. He did so by artfully staging the illusion in people's minds that an alien invasion was taking place, using nothing but broadcast radio waves. Had he done exactly the same thing with a ghost story, it might not have made any difference. But to this day, the rationale exists to avoid informing the public that advanced non-human beings live among us, operate in our biosphere, and possess absurdly advanced technology based on one simple piece of reasoning. We can't tell the American public because they will panic. That simple rationale is why a dead showman, an irrepressible genius responsible for the best production of Shakespeare ever fielded on the American stage, the most convincing radio drama ever broadcast, and the film, widely regarded as the best motion picture of all time, is the biggest impediment to common sense and UFO disclosure to this very day. Okay, well, so why was this such a big deal anyway? Didn't people get it? It was just a radio show? I mean, come on. Well, to understand what happened, you would need to know how it went down that night. And to understand how that could happen, you need to understand who Orson Welles was. He was brilliant from childhood. He was told that by his parents. His mother died uh, when he was, I think, uh, 15. Uh, his father died soon after. He grew up then a single child. He was massively talented. And he gained uh, from early on a tremendous ego that he had the certitude that he knew what he was doing. The director, Peter Bogdovich, once said of Wells that he broke every rule worth breaking. He showed up in New York totally unknown and became massively popular on the basis of the Mercury, Mercury Theater production of what was called Voodoo Hamlet. He staged Shakespeare in Harlem at the height of the Depression, using primarily actors with little or no prior experience. He followed that up with Julius Caesar, done in the style of the Nazi Nuremberg celebrations. That particular stage play, crafted by a barely 22-year-old Orson Welles, is widely regarded by many as the best production of Shakespeare ever done on the American stage. Nothing was sacred to Orson Welles. He became in such great demand that the fine radio voice and his proclivity to enunciate with unstudied eloquence, they soon had more radio bookings than he could handle. Wells realized that there was no law saying you actually had to be sick to ride in an ambulance. So Orson hired an ambulance to take him, siren wailing and lights flashing at breakneck speed through red lights and around waiting traffic from one radio station to the next as he worked his way through the broadcast day. Orson Wells was as big a celebrity as could be imagined, and he was a law unto himself. Now the next thing you need to know is the situation at the time. Wells' small little upstart radio show 
an audio-only version of his Mercury Theater troupe. With Skittle be opposite the monster hit Chase and Sanborn Hour with Don Amici, hosting such major acts as Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, the smart Alec wooden mannequin. Wells knew three things. First of all, he was never going to gain an equal measure of the audience unless he did something that would garner a lot of attention. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy were a national institution. Second thing he knew was that everybody in America was tuned into the Chase and Sanborn show to begin the hour. And the third thing that he realized that most of the listeners would skim the dial during the first or second musical break to see if anything else would be more interesting. In effect, Wells knew that very few people would be listening to his opening, but he knew exactly when they might begin listening to his show. Armed with that knowledge, Orson Welles crafted two radio shows in one. The first version, which is remarkable, with the finesse in which he brings the listener into the fake radio broadcast, which he uses as a framing device, is meant to be listened to from beginning. It's, it's self-contained. It's the one that we always hear played on Halloween night. Another, a more carefully crafted internal version, was meant to be listened to when the radio audience stumbled across it while channel surfing during the musical break. Now, I've done a little detective work, and it is a lot easier to realize when you hear the show as people actually heard it. To begin with, we're going to hear the official version of the Mercury Theater of the Air production meant to set the stage. The thing we hear on History Replays, but something that 98% of America never heard on that fateful Halloween evening. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... 
business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain. That was the version for the history books, with Wells's deep intonation expected by him not to be heard by the majority of the audience. The explanation that this is a radio play was lost to history. Now, I put the two radio shows into an editor, and I've got them playing side by side, just as they did in 1938. We will begin with the opening of the Chase and Sanborn show, and as the first musical interlude arrives, I'll replicate the process of changing channels just as the restless listeners of 1938 tended to do. Listen for the channel change 10 seconds after the first song starts. This is what was coming out of America's living room radios, while Orson Welles was setting the stage to a house full of empty seats. What you are about to hear is the opening of the Chase and Sanborn show with a station change after the music is introduced. By then, Welles had already made his transition and the newly arrived listener was unknowingly already inside the drama. The makers of Chase and Sanborn Coffee, the superb blend you know is fresh, present the Chase and Sanborn Hour, and your host, Don Amici. rounding up the Chase and Sanborn gang and greeting you for all of them. A hearty hello from Nelson Eddy, Dorothy L'Amour, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Robert Arm Brewster, and Judy Canova with Annie and Zeke. We hope that you'll enjoy our show and that throughout the week you remain our friends as well as friends of Chase and Sanborn. With a, uh, Howdy, Mr. Amici. Uh, oh, hello, Judy. Is there anything I can do for you? Say, you know, Mr. Amici, I've been looking at that little McCarthy fella for four weeks now, and I'll be dogged if I can figure him out. Yeah, well, don't try it, Judy. We all have the same trouble. He sure is mystifying how them words comes a-bouncing across his wooden tonsils, ain't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, and you know I keep a-thinking of what folks down in Unadilla do if they feed him. Would they be amazed, Judy? Amazed? <laughs> Listen, Mr. Amici, did you ever see a tree walking? <laughs> like as not, they hang a sap bucket on to it. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, Charlie, Judy only meant Yeah, yeah, I heard you... what she said. I heard. I heard. Oh, shucks, Charlie. I was only complimenting you. Mm. Why, you ain't got nothing against me, have you? No, but I can very easily develop something. <laughs> oh, now, listen here. Now, that's too bad, Darl Zim. You see, uh... I was hoping that I and you could sort of kind of get together like, you know. Uh-oh. I sort of like you. You do? I sure do. Bergen, get your gun. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, Sally. I'm sure you'll feel better when you know that our guest tonight is one of our mutual friends honoring us with a return visit, the lovely Madeline Carroll. Oh, Madeline. Da -da -da -dum -da -da. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sally, but we'll let Nelson Eddy do the singing. And it's the rousing, rip-roaring song of the Vagabonds from the Vagabond King. <laughs> <laughs> 
Temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With the touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Capacita. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. And at this point, the audience would typically go back to Chase and Sanborn, if they'd even left in the first place. Well, set the stage for what was going to happen later on with an interruption of really no major consequence. It only served to make the music of Raymond Raquello seem more real. He saved his best piece for when the entire Bergen McCarthy Act was finished. That was the prime time. That was when most of America began channel surfing. It was at this much more likely transition point at the beginning of the second song where Wells unleashed his Martians, burned down an encampment, and declared martial law. Anyone hearing this having been snagged after listening to Bergen and McCarthy and not hearing the introduction that is so familiar now could not help but believe that something terrible was happening in New Jersey. For the first time in over 70 years, listen to the introduction of the War of the Worlds as it was originally broadcast in, the, in living rooms across America. We begin 12 minutes and 21 seconds into the hour as poor befuddled Edgar Bergen tries to tell a Halloween story to Charlie McCarthy. Bergen is made the fool by his mannequin, and then we hear a song. And 10 seconds is the time it would take for someone to walk across the living room and change the channel. It's at that point when the listening public got their first taste of Orson Welles' war, which by then seemed already in progress. Now, where was I? You're right here. Yes, I <laughs> Picture, if you can, an old house with a foundation settling, sagging roof, 
peeling wallpaper. Can you picture it? Picture it? We live in it. <laughs> In this house, there had formerly lived old miser. Of course, you know what a miser is. Oh, sure, sure. A miser is a man who thinks 75 cents a lot. No. No, you don't. That burns him up. <laughs> now, this miser had lived and died in one of the upstairs bedrooms. And it was believed that his ghost haunted it. Uh, the plot thickens. <laughs> and do you know, Charlie... I was the first person brave enough to spend the night in that bedroom. Ah, oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Nothing happened until midnight. Nothing ever does. <laughs> and then, out of the still of the night, I heard the old grandfather's clock in the hall strike the witching hour. Bong! Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Bon, will you please stop? Yeah, when you hear the next cuckoo, it'll be exactly Bergen. Y yeah. yeah. All right, enough of that. Yeah. Fellas, will you stop interrupting? <laughs> Gee, you're being very rude. Oh, now, keep quiet. And very darling. unfunny. And the least you can do... All right, all right. Will you stop, too, Charlie? Oh, me? Yes. I was... You're the worst one of all. Is that so? Yes. <laughs> Shortly after midnight, I heard a peculiar noise, as if someone were tapping on the walls. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> I thought I saw something. No, no, no. <laughs> tapping on the walls. Yes, yes. And I heard footsteps on the ceiling. I couldn't figure out what it was. Maybe you had a snootful. No, no. <laughs> I was only trying to help. Well, please don't. All right. No, no. Then suddenly, the steps got closer and closer. And then, without warning, a horrible figure pounced upon me. Something tugged at my memory. Where had I seen that ghostly face before? In a mirror? No, no. <laughs> Uh, that settles it. That settles what? I'm not going to finish this story. Well, why not? Well, I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. I have made a fool of myself. Well, it certainly took you long enough to get wise. <laughs> years ago, a song about a couple of people who were very, very tired swept the country. Remember, let's put out the lights and go to sleep. Well, now another one has come along, and it looks like just as big a hit. It's by Hoagie Carmichael, and it's called, simply enough, Two Sleeping People. Dorothy Lemoore shows how it goes, and very nicely, too. Dorothy? <laughs> Someone calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous discs. Are the eyes, it might be a face, might be almost oh, oh, heavens. Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. But, oh yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large and large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but it's a face. It's, it's, Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is a kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words and... Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can 
take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. witness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my honor. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. Strike him head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Oh, the by the woods. The bars are gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, 
crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. And that's how it started. This is an amazing piece of calculated showmanship. The transition from the harmless reality of Edgar Bergen to the terrifying fiction at Grover's Mill is seamless because Wells cuts back to the fake studio just often enough to make everybody believe that what they're listening on another radio station is real. When the CBS switchboards lit up and the producer of the, of the uh, program came in to tell him to make an announcement amid the show, Wells refused knowing that he'd get better ratings if the show impressed more people. He later said that he had no idea the country was scared, but that was a lie. He had kept the show in character as long as possible, and he claimed, rather disingenuously, that the War of the Worlds has no further significance as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying, boo. But... It wasn't going to be that easy. At the time, the newspapers resented the upstart radio, and the next day the newspapers printed exaggerated stories, and there was plenty of actual stories to go on. By strange coincidence, there was an explosion at a power plant outside a, a city in Portland, and all the lights went out, along with all the power, right in the middle of the show. It was all part of a carefully crafted plan, and people were genuinely concerned because they had been led to believe that something was genuinely going on. But that show had an unanticipated effect. Orson Welles had unwittingly planted a ticking time bomb into the conscious mind of the body politic. A world war came and went, and a decade later, a systematic reconnaissance of the most powerful of the victors, the United States of America, was conducted during the spring of 1947 by a number of silver disc-shaped objects of unknown origin that exhibited performance characteristics beyond that of anything known to man at the time. In the early months of 1947, flying saucers were observed in every state of the Union except one. They were seen over power generation facilities, military bases, and areas of strategic interest to anyone wanting to know what humanity was capable of. Ironically, they were first widely reported near Washington, D.C., uh, or first reported in Washington by Kenneth Arnold, although they had been seen a month earlier, the first report having taken place in May of that year in Virginia, ironically enough by a weatherman observing a weather balloon through a tracking scope. The craft spent some time near Seattle, home of Boeing Aircraft, who had built the B-29, and were observed later on in June going down the west coast at Miroc Army Air Base, which is now Edwards. And on the 2nd of July, one of them was photographed right here in Phoenix by Mr. Rhodes. The photograph is now famous. Two days later, the reconnaissance effort arrived over the most sensitive installation in the United States, the Roswell Army Airfield. Two of them fell out of the sky. It cannot have been, if you look at the reports in a larger historical context, an accident. Within 24 hours, according to Whitley Strieber, who ought to know, everyone from Truman on down to the, to, to the on-scene guys knew that they were dealing something not human, using very advanced technology. And faced with a decision to follow up 
on the initial report that the Army had captured a flying disc, they made a fateful decision to take the whole issue secret. Chances are it was instinctive military Cold War paranoia that triggered that decision. But to this day, the rationale exists to avoid informing the public that advanced non-human beings live among us, operate in our biosphere, and possess technology based on one simple piece of reasoning. If Orson Welles can incite panic and pandemonium with nothing more than a radio broadcast, what will happen if someone in authority discloses to the American populations that UFOs are now officially real and that non-human intelligent life forms are visiting, likely operating on, our Earth? That leaves us, the American people, in a state of denial and confusion, and it makes disclosure very difficult. Well, disclosure as a society? It's very difficult for our society to, to wrestle with this problem, although there seems to be a lot of uh, indications that we're trying to. But it also is a matter of individuals. The individual who has that understanding of the story that Uncle Fred told uh, about the time he saw the glowing light and had the missing time knows somewhere in the bottom of his mind that there's something out there. He also knows that it's the official truth that they're not. And that dissonance uh, makes it very difficult for a rational conversation and communication to take place on this issue. Well, you know, Larry, we hear a lot of talk about disclosure. Um, um, recently, uh, you know, we've heard Steve Bassett, Stephen Greer, Michael Sala, you know, talking about uh, disclosure has to happen and uh, it's going to be soon. So what do you think? Is it imminent? Uh, a significant number of researchers seem to think that. And everybody that I talk to that, who doesn't read that literature says it's basically impossible. Uh, the newly uh, appointed president, reelected president, is in the middle of a battle for the very credibility of his, uh, his way of thinking. Uh, he's got a war he's trying to stop, but he's trying to do that by sending more troops to. There's a huge battle over health care. The economy's in a depression. Uh, the list of things that are wrong, that need attention, is long. And the discord in Washington seems to be strongly split along bipartisan lines. I don't know of anybody outside the UFO community who thinks that disclosure is a concept that, uh, that they can relate to, much less that the President of the United States is uh, going to try. Well, like you said, the President's got a lot on his plate right now. And... Um, yeah, it does seem um, uh, that he maybe could do something with disclosure if he didn't have all of these other things going on. But, you know, a lot of people think the president isn't privy to this information. So if he were informed, could he really change reality with the stroke of a pen? Well, you know, Stephen Greer would have that be the case, that uh, by signing a proclamation, the president, the POTUS, he likes to refer to him, would somehow change the reality in people's minds. But the psychology of that is a lot more complicated because we live in a situation 
where there's a Freud talks about the unconscious being a uh, carefully balanced uh, condition where you believe and don't believe at the same time. And down below our consciousness, we can consider a lot of information, uh, both plus and minus. But what filters up through the structures of the midbrain to re result in what we perceive as consciousness is tempered by a set of understandings that's unique to every individual. Well, they, the, the ideas that come up have to end up fitting within what's comfortable. And for a lot of people, they're not even prepared to think about the idea that the aliens exist or they might be here. And Barack Obama writing a proclamation and simply stating that they are is going to be perceived as a shock. And we actually run the risk of some people going farther back in denial. Uh, I don't think it's that easy. I think it, I think there's other ways that, that have to be accomplished. Well, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of have mixed feelings about all of it. But um, how how can disclosure happen? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, my personal belief is that all paradigm shift is personal. Uh, it's it, the the unconscious sorting out of things and the changing of the filters in the midbrain to make it acceptable for these ideas to arrive have to occur inside the minds of every individual. Uh, and how can you do that? Uh, society was once defined as the people that you know reasonably well. Uh, the new paradigm of uh, the new mechanism, I should say, of social networking, which we see on Facebook. Uh, in other other areas where you've got trusted friends and people that you communicate with and you share information. There's a very broad-based, widely spread dissemination of information that goes sideways rather than top-down. And to some degree, that's more understood, more accepted. Uh, I think we need social networking to step up and address this issue and get people, this is the hard part, to read the right good books. Uh, you and I talked about this earlier, and that is that uh, even for journalists, it's a very difficult thing because uh, there isn't a body of knowledge that we can trust. Now, the other thing we need is open conversation amongst people, and we need good media. Well, I have an idea of what uh, I think good media is, but um, I want to hear your opinion. What do you think good media is? Well, I think unquestionably the best thing we've seen recently is James Fox's movie, I Know What I Saw, which can be characterized as his earlier film, uh, Out of the Blue, on steroids. Uh, not so much for the details he brings forward, although James is careful to bring the most credible uh, information and the best cases and the best evidence forward, but it's the tone of his presentation. The, his ability to say simply and clearly, this is what's going on. Now, the first five or six minutes of his piece discussing the Phoenix Lights alone, uh, where um, Sue Watson utters the phrase, I know what I saw, uh, and it wasn't from around here. And you can't tell me that it was A-10s. And why do you lie to me? with the idea that you get away with it. Why don't we get together and try and all figure it out? That's the most poignant and valuable piece of media 
that we've seen. And I think there's other efforts like that uh, that are coming along. I agree. I think James's movie was very good, but I'm just not sure that the average person that's flipping through the channel stopped and watched it because, you know, I don't know that the average person uh, has a uh, concept, you know, or wants to know about the concept, actually. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, the, the, I, had, I had the privilege of seeing the film in total un overlaid by the History Channel, and it's a completely different experience when you take his whole work. Uh, at Evolver Phoenix, we're working on a film distribution program where 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 people can get together uh, and get a, uh, a, a private screening of films like this, films like uh, Daniel Pace's uh, magnificent work, uh, The Appearance of a Man, and if these films are seen in small numbers and the discussion can happen, there's a psychological shock absorber where people talking with their peer group, talking with their society, talking with the people they know and respect, can examine and explore these ideas given sensible uh, information like Fox is putting out. Uh, I think there is a way that society can teach itself what Obama cannot disclose. Well, that's a good, uh, you know, I like how you're thinking there. I don't, uh, you know, I don't know if we'll ever see some sort of formal disclosure unless the aliens do it themselves. But in the in the meantime, are you doing anything in particular to bring about disclosure? Well, uh, I, I and a lot of other people are trying the very best they can uh, who've read the literature, who've spent their time in this field, uh, and, and you're doing, you know, what you can, even though you've relatively new to it all. Uh, having a television or a radio show like this, uh, discussing why Wells did what he did, how he fooled everybody. Um, we didn't even get into the fact that the Robertson panel in 1952 um, funded, made a decision that the UFO subject had to be ridiculed, and they ended up, the CIA ended up funding uh, the formation of the National Enquirer. Uh, so I'm speaking out on shows like this. I appreciate very much the invitation. I'm, I'm writing as best I can at the Phoenix Examiner as thoughtfully as possible. Uh, I filmed a show that will be out later this year, uh, towards the end of the year, on the National Geographic Channel, looking into all of this. And uh, I'm encouraging everybody to uh, uh, all collectively try to take one step forward from wherever they happen to be at. Well, I'm excited about this show that you've done with National Geographic. Um, I want the listeners to be sure and take note that that's supposed to be out um, by the, before the end of the year. So, um, you know, be scanning your TV guides for that. Um, what is there any anything that you can tell us about it? About the show? Uh, I, I really can't speak much about it uh, for a lot of very good reasons. I'm not just being coy. Uh, the, the piece will speak for itself very well. That's the whole point to that kind of craftsmanship. Uh, I can say that it does something I think very valid, and that is uh, the last piece of widespread media coverage of this whole issue was done in 1952 in April when uh, then the icon of publishing, Life Magazine, 
published uh, an article that the Air Force actually had helped them put together over a year, and they came down to four conclusions. And the very last conclusion they came to is that of all of these reports, uh, there is no known propulsion unit that allows for the kind of performance that the witness reports present to us. And it's to the great good credit of the producer of this particular piece that that's exactly where he starts. Uh, they investigate the possibilities for propulsion. And beyond that, um, I'm just going to have to let the piece speak for itself when it finally comes out. Uh, I will say that uh, if you keep an eye on the Phoenix UFO Examiner, I'm certain there will probably be a mention of it when we get a little bit closer to air date. All right. Well, we're all going to be uh, looking forward to that then, Larry. Um, we're getting a little close on time. I think we've got about five minutes left. So do you have any last thoughts? Well, yes, I do. I think that we need two things in this field. Um, we need uh, a discerning audience that doesn't allow itself to be fooled by any particular uh, media or any posturing or any debunking. And we need a responsible media. And I would recommend every journalist out there to get a copy of a thing called Oh, wait a second. Can you hold on a second here? I've got well, a... We're out. Okay, well... No, well, just talk. a second. I, I, this is a... I'm sorry. Look at my phone on vibrate. Um, hold, hold on. Joe, we're edit this out air. of the archive. Hello? Look, I'm on the air. I can't, I can't talk right now. Yeah? Uh, all right. I'll go take a look. Let me... Uh, I've got to talk to you later. Okay. We're... I'm, so, I'm sorry, Angela. That's... Uh... Okay. Well... Well, these guys, these my listeners are are pretty cool with things like that, but uh, we can edit it out of the archives, no problem. What? Oh um, uh, well, anyway, I got to step outside for a little bit. This was a report. It's a hotline that I've got from Jim Mann, the Phoenix UFO, uh, the MUFON director. They, there's some lights. Uh, somebody's seen some lights coming this way. You want me to go take a look? And uh, you know, we we do this to check things out because. You know, 95% of all the lights in the sky that are reported are not um, anything unusual. And the good work of MUFON is to identify that. So I'm just going to take a, a little bit oh. of a, a look here. Hold on a second. I didn't know you worked with MUFON. Uh, yeah, I'm a f former field investigator. Let me just get out the door here and uh, take a look outside. That's um, cold out here. Um, I learned uh, to uh, my field investigator trading with MUFON was done back when I was with uh, MUFON LA, um, and I had the good fortune to look into a lot of cases. And it is surprising how often people misinterpret something. Um, well, we know that only five percent are really, you know, good unidentified flying objects. Yeah, it's a little bit of a of a boring word, but what we're going to do is uh, there's uh, there's apparently some lights coming in my direction from the east, and I happen to be in a path, so we're going to take a look. And I can tell you right now, the chances are pretty good that it's an airliner, uh, maybe with an unusual light pattern going into Sky Harbor, because I live out in Mesa, and they're going to come in. Uh, they usually come in um, on a pattern towards the airport. Uh, but yes, I think it's very important to go ahead and identify. We had a big issue with a balloon out here recently that MUFON very properly uh, identified a weather, not actually not a weather balloon, it was a, a, a gamma ray observatory research balloon at wow. 120,000 feet and it was backlit by the sun and, 
and uh, the MUFON reported that properly. Okay, I think I see what they're talking about at this point. There is some lights headed this way. Um, is it an airplane? Well, it's too far away to tell. We haven't heard any noise yet. I don't know. I'm, what I'm seeing, actually, though, is uh, at this point, three lights in a row, and I would suspect this is going to end up being a formation, probably, of helicopters. I, you know, if you've seen those big lights that the, uh, yeah. the police department has, God, they can light up the area. Yeah. A lot and, of times we're, we have some people around here that are fooled by the flares being dropped by F-16s. Oh, man, I'll tell you. that You, you say flares in Phoenix, and... Uh, That's a dirty word, isn't it? You know, you can start a range <laughs> war with that. Uh, I actually went out and photographed some flares dropped at the Barry Goldwater range uh, a little while ago, and uh, those will be in the column. That was very interesting. How, uh, this is unusual. There's Now, there actually are, I can see five lights, and it is... They're flying in a V formation, which would be pretty reasonable. They're kind of wide apart, though, uh, and they're drifting this way. Um, Can you hear let's anything? Just, let's just educate the audience. If you ever see a UFO report uh, and you're at night and you're, you, you start to have to try to think, uh, first thing I'm going to do is, is the North Star is seven, meter, seven lengths away from the end of the Big Dipper, and I happen to know where it is, and so I'm facing that. And I'm going to turn here. 90 degrees to my right to the east. I'm a little bit southwest of the intersection of Stapley and, and University. And these lights are coming to that location from about, I'm going to say, 55 degrees from north. So that's helpful. They're not very high. And they're taking up about, gee, 30%, 30 degrees angular distance. As this formation gets closer, I would expect it to... Do you hear anything? No, Angela, I don't hear anything. And by now I should have heard something. Any dogs barking? There's there's nothing going on now. It's gotten very, very quiet. And this would appear to be a genuine sighting. And, no way. And there is, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. There is a very large structured object has just floated to a halt right over my head. I'm looking up into that liquid light that, that Tim Lee and the others were looking at. It's hovering? Uh, well, it's doing something. I don't, this isn't propelled by anything we know of. I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. How big and, is it? It, well, it's, it, 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 go, it, 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 it goes all the way out from where I'm in the backyard here in either direction. I can't tell you how big this thing is. No way. It's, 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 oh, come on. No, I'm not kidding you. This thing is right here over me. Now, there's a light has come on on the left between the, tip, the, the one in the leading edge and down on this, and it seems like it's a blue light, and, and it seems to be glowing, and it has come down now to the ground where I'm at. Be careful. And, well, careful. What am I going to do? Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I am. This light has evoked. It's completely around me now, and I've got this feeling of electricity. Larry. Stop. No way. Larry. Larry, are you there? 
Do we lose him? Joe? Do we lose him? Hey. Uh, do we? Uh, Larry? Oh, my gosh. Larry? <laughs> well, maybe his cell phone just cut off or something. Well, well, I know we're getting close. We'll have to call him, guys. Larry might be getting Do you have a... Do you... Can you tell if he's still on the line, Joe? I don't see him. I don't see nothing. <laughs> You're uh, kidding. I, I, I don't see nothing. I think something got him. It ain't showing nothing on our end, and all everything's working. This can't be. No, this cannot be. Everything seems to be working good. Okay, Joe, this isn't funny. So what is going on, you think? Uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully nothing's going on that I think of. <laughs> Lord, hey, guys, anybody out in the, in the uh, Arizona area want to go take a ride out by Larry's and see what's going on? You know, I don't even have another number. I don't have another number to call or anything. I don't know even somebody that lives by him. Never mind. We better not send nobody out there in case someone got his butt. We don't want to get anybody else. Guys, I don't know. No way. What what, what can we say? Well, what we can say is trick or treat from the joiner report. (laughs) Happy Halloween. Oh, Lord. The crazies are loose tonight. The crazies are loose tonight. That's true. Okay. Okay, so that was fun. So, um, okay, I think we all learned something, you know, about this, uh, about Orson Welles and and how people can be uh, absolutely uh, fooled is, you know, we probably didn't do it as well as Orson Welles, but we had a good time, and we hope that you had a good time. And uh, we'll see you next week, next Friday night on the Joiner Report. Good night. Good night, everybody. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Mary's House. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, We ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can't handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind.
everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. This is episode number 31. By the way, I still love to say I don't want to believe, I want to know. That's the whole purpose of this show. However, in case you didn't know, that quote is from Carl Sagan. So a few days ago, I started thinking of a new quote that would be original to this show. First, it was Disclosure One Show at a Time, but then I went to some of my friends, including Stephen Bassett, and presented Disclosure One Guest at a Time, and they really liked it. Steve says it puts the emphasis on the people doing the work, and our show is as good as the guests we have. So now the pressure is on. Disclosure One Guest at a Time. Tonight's special guest is Joanne Richards, the secret military space program. Wait until you hear what she has to say. This is one of those shows to be really skeptical, but with an open mind. Next week's special guest is G. Edward Griffin, the creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. The Veritas Show is syndicated by the following affiliates, K-Rock's Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network, UPRN 105.8 FM, New Orleans. If you need to get in touch with me, send an email to mel, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com, or head on to our website and click on the Contact button. And don't forget to stop at the Manticore Forum, where you can send questions to our future guests and discuss many topics with members around the world. And speaking of the Manticore, a few days ago, a number of people joined, and if you haven't stopped by the Manticore, take a look at what they're saying. And for some reason, in the last few days, a lot of our members emailed me saying that they were being blocked. People from many countries, uh, people from United Arab Emirates, Denmark, Greece, uh, Australia, the United Kingdom, and many other countries. And the interesting thing was that they were able to log into Veritas, but not to Manticore. And we wonder if there's a correlation there. So take a look. I believe we have our own version of Disclosure taking place at the Manticore. Uh, you can join. In order for you to read, you have to uh, become a, a registered at the Manticore. But if you want to post and uh, download the material, you have to become a Veritas subscriber. That's another benefit that you get. And here's a preview of our upcoming show with G. Edward Griffin, the creature of Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. But we're dealing with what I proposed in my book was a corruption of what the monetary system should be. I, I, I looked at it as, as a huge mistake. I looked at it as a, a repeat of history, which has always uh, resulted in disaster in the past. And so when you take that point of view, you cannot help but project into the future. And uh, a lot of my, uh, uh, the import of what I was trying to say in the book was that, look, uh, everybody, if we don't turn this trend around, we're going to wind up the same way all other nations have ended up who have followed this course of uh, debauching their currency, creating money out of nothing, uh, living on debt instead of production and all of those things. I honestly feel as if I'm talking with Ron Paul. Well, uh, certainly Ron Paul and I see eye to eye on the uh, basic uh, principles of the monetary system, no question. Now, Congressman Ron Paul has sponsored the audit the Fed bill 
And as of today, he has collected 250 signatures from co-sponsors. However, I just heard the Senate has blocked it. Those who are blocking it, isn't it proof that we have the best politicians that money can buy? I think that's certainly uh, conclusive evidence. Uh, Who would want to block any bill to audit the Fed? Uh, We think we should abolish the Fed because of what we already know about it. We know that it's creating money out of nothing. We know it's pushing the the value of the American dollar down, down, and down. We know it's redistributing the wealth from the middle class to those in the politically favored class. We know all of those things without an audit. And, of course, uh, Chairman Bernanke said that this bill would make would uh, mean a takeover by Congress and threaten the financial system, dollar, and economy. So let me get this straight. The Fed prints trillions of dollars out of thin air, artificially lowers interest rates to increase poor and malinvestment of capital, and gives Americans the rope of cheap credit to hand themselves with. So who exactly is the threat to financial stability, and who is the one that has taken us over since 1913? Well, that's a very good question, Mel. It, just to ask the question is to answer it, that Bernanke is uh, is uh, resorting to rhetoric, and there's no substance to what he's saying, unless what he's saying is that he doesn't want Congress or anybody else, the public, to be thinking about what they're doing. Isn't it interesting? A few weeks ago, I saw somebody taking video in front of the Federal Reserve, uh, Reserve Building, and all of a sudden, a guard comes out and says, Sir, I'm sorry, but it's prohibited to take video in front of federal buildings. That is not a federal building, is it? No, it's not. It's not a federal building. And this is such a crucial, invisible tax that so many people don't understand. I go to social gatherings all the time, and people say, Well, taxes are not that high in the United States. But when you see that inflation just erodes your savings or earnings, then people get it. Yeah, they have to really think about it. They don't realize that it takes a dollar today. Uh, well, I shouldn't call it a dollar. It takes one Federal Reserve note, they call it there a dollar, uh, to purchase what could have been purchased for three cents back in 1913. In other words, 97% of our money, our savings, everything invested in, denominated in terms of dollars, 97% of that has been stolen from the American people, and they don't even know it. Wasn't it ironic to see President George W. Bush speak in front of the Israeli Knesset when his own grandfather, Prescott Bush, funded Hitler and the Nazi machine for almost 20 years? Here's a prime example of someone dealing with both sides of war. Well, yes, certainly, and uh, of course, I don't think we should uh, we should blame uh, George Bush for his grandfather, but nevertheless, it is ironic. Uh, certainly, uh, Bush Jr. has never repudiated his grandfather's uh, work, so I guess we have to assume that he he's quite proud of it. I had a guest a few weeks ago who said that the devil has higher approval rating than our Congress. The devil? Well, what's the difference? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> when you wrote your book, our deficits were high. But I bet you may not have speculated they would be as high as they are today. I always say that slavery was not really abolished. It was transformed into the 9 to 5 matrix. With the never-ending deficits, how can we really go back to sound fiscal monetary policy short of abolishing the Federal Reserve? No, we must abolish the Federal Reserve. That uh, has to be done if we're ever going to get back to fiscal monetary policy.
again, it's been a long time since I read you some headlines from our blog. This one comes from our friends Carrie Cassidy and Bill Ryan from Project Camelot. Mandatory H1N1 vaccinations declared in Norway. Stay strong and resist the upcoming mandatory swine flu shot. It is more dangerous for your health than the current virus, and it has not been tested. News reports shot ready around November 09. Will we see Norway's first civil war in almost 60 years? Pretty scary. And if this goes to Norway, you know that the rest of the world will follow. And more about Norway. Norway to raise toxic Nazi submarine wreck. UFO captured on Soho coincides with crop circle prediction. And this one you have to check out. Website recreates Apollo 11 mission in real time. You have to go to the blog, VeritasShow.com, and click on the blog. And click on there on that website, and you'll see real time a recreation of exactly minute by minute how the Apollo mission happened. And I'll read you a little bit more of this one. Families crowded around black and white television sets in 1969 to watch Neil Armstrong take man's first steps on the moon. Now they'll be able to watch the Apollo 11 mission recreated in real time on the web. Follow Twitter feeds of transmissions between mission control and the spacecraft. And even get an email alert when the lunar module touches down. Those features are part of a new website from the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum commemorating the moon mission and Kennedy's push to land Americans there first. Quote, putting a man on the moon really did unite the globe, unquote, said Thomas Putnam, director of the JFK Library. Quote, we hope to use the Internet to do the same thing, unquote. The website, wechoosethemoon.org, again, wechoosethemoon.org, goes live at 8.02 a.m. Thursday, 90 minutes before the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launch from Cape Canaveral, Florida. It will track the capsule's route from the Earth to the Moon, ending with the Moon landing and Armstrong's walk in real time, but 40 years later. For more current headlines or more information on the topics you heard, again, go to the website, VeritasShow.com, and click on the blog. And now, get ready for a fascinating show which will take you to a new reality. If you want to know what really happens above in our skies, on the moon, and below us, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Famergus, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. to the Veritas Show. Joanne Richards is the Executive Director of Educational Nonprofit Earth Defense Headquarters. Her husband, Mark Richards, and his father, 
Ellis Lloyd Richards, were involved with top-level military intelligence operations since World War II. Many of these operations included on-world and off-world contact and battles with various alien species. Mark's family history includes some very interesting bloodlines and personal connections. Both of his grandfathers worked with Nikola Tesla. Grandfather Richards worked on the Manhattan Project. Mark's father spent summers with Tesla, Goddard, and Hubble. Both he and Mark were involved with top-secret activities since they were teenagers. It runs in the family. Joanne speaks about her knowledge of a few military operations and meetings that these men were involved with. In 1984, Mark was falsely convicted of a murder and has been incarcerated ever since. The family now believes it was to keep him quiet about what he knows and to keep him from fighting the New World Order. Hello, Joanne, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure having you. First, my apologies. I kept referring to you as Joanne Sanders. I, ha I have no idea why. I don't either. It's not even my maiden name. Well, in any event, as as many of the guests we have uh, had so far on this show, many of the listeners are the ones who point me to all of you. And what sold me in wanting to invite you was the recent interview you conducted with uh, Kevin Smith in Sedona, Arizona. Let's start from the beginning so that we can put things in perspective. Your husband, okay. Mark Richards, is uh, currently in prison. Yes, he is. Uh, set the stage for us on how you met Mark and how you get to learn what you're going to share with us tonight. Okay. Let's see. I met Mark in September of 1997, and we started writing for a couple months, and then I um, started visiting him, and we've been married. It'll be seven years later this month. And uh, he's just he's a great guy. He's highly educated. He comes from a great family. He's brilliant, and he's had lots of experiences in uh, many fields, so we have a, a lot to talk about, and then I started doing research for him, and then he started telling me about what he used to do with the military, and then I started uh, exhibiting and going to different UFO and conspiracy conferences and, and sharing the information that I have, and and so now I've spoken at a couple of conferences, and I have booths at more local conferences, and I've been doing some radio and TV interviews, and there we are. When did he start telling you all the stuff you're going to be sharing with us tonight? I probably knew him for, you know, I probably knew him for several years or a few years before I actually really knew uh, what he used to do. I mean, I knew he'd been in the military. I knew he had been a filmmaker. I knew I knew he was a writer. I knew he'd had a construction business. He's had several businesses, um, basically as covers, even 